Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. So hi everyone, uh, I'm Amy Shakespeare and this is my colleague Deborah Ashfield um, and we're going to be presenting together today. Um, we're both first year PhD students at the University of Exeter's Penryn campus and we wanted to do something for the Decolonising Research Festival and we're originally kind of thinking of doing separate presentations or workshops. Um, but then we realised sort of how much overlap there actually is between our seemingly different research interests. So I'm based in the history department and Deborah is based in the English department. So I just kind of wanted to caveat today's presentation by saying that it's very much a work in progress. Um, it's very kind of experimental and drawing the two things together and seeing how they sort of um, work in dialogue with each other and so we're just trialing some ideas here today and we're really grateful that you're kind of here to join us for that um, and we'd very much welcome any feedback that you have um, or any sort of thoughts that it sparks for yourselves and we're hoping to leave some time to open up the discussion at the end of the session um, for us all to think about extraction and loss and absence within our own work. Um, and there'll also be time for questions, but do feel free as we're going through to pop questions in the chat. Um, and then maybe we can kind of have more of a unmute and, and free for all at the end. Um, so. Um, yeah, so we're gonna be uh, talking a little bit um, uh, over the kind of course of the next half an hour, 45 minutes um, between jumping between um, ourselves um, and then opening out to everyone else to join in. Um, we're going to start off talking about kind of some of the differences between um, terms like decolonizing and decolonial and what kind of um, nuances and politics and differences kind of uh, in between um, between those terms are. Um, then I'm going to move into talking a little bit about uh, extraction and the refusal of extraction. So I'm going to be talking a bit about extractive research practices and how these relate to uh, extractive colonialism, colonialisms. Um, and then going to be thinking a bit about connections between um, anti-extractivism and anti-colonialism in research. Um, then Amy's going to be chatting a bit about uh, the role of loss um, in relation to her research. Um, which looks at uh, repatriation um, from UK museums to uh, Indigenous communities in uh, so-called Canada. Um, and then she's going to be thinking, she's going to be talking a bit about the kind of the potential of absence and what the absence is left by spaces um, might mean and the kind of possibilities that might lie there, um, particularly in terms of anti-colonial practice and spaces. Yeah, so that's kind of um, as Deb said, an overview. Um, we wanted to start by just asking um, whether you sort of can use a reaction or the hands up function um, 
do you consider your work to be decolonial or decolonizing? Um, so yeah, just do either a thumbs up reaction if you do, or um, the hands up. Okay, so we've got a couple. Great. So a few people do. Brilliant. Um, and now we wanted to ask, um, do you consider your work to be anti-colonial? And the same thing again. One, two. Okay, so fairly even split between decolonial and anti-colonial, which is um, really interesting. So um, you may be familiar with um, this article from Tuck and Yang, decolonization is not a metaphor, um, but we really wanted to sort of introduce a few key quotes from the article to start today's session off. Um, both Deborah and I use the term anti-colonial rather than decolonial, um, and Tuck and Yang and a few others have been key to us both separately, I should say, but both coming to that conclusion. Um, and it might seem like semantics, um, but actually there's really kind of powerful meaning behind the term decolonization. And so as this quote says, decolonization brings about the repatriation of indigenous land and life. It is not a metaphor for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. Um, so we can see here that that message is very much about land back and life back. And so thinking about how does, can research be decolonial um, or is there another word like anti-colonial that might fill that space better? Um, so yeah, Tuck and Yang go on to talk about uh, this trend noticed, which we'll kind of all be familiar with. Um, and they say one trend that we've noticed with growing apprehension is the ease with which the language of decolonization has been superficially adopted into in education and other social sciences, supplanting prior ways of talking about social justice, critical methodologies or approaches which uh, approaches which decentral center settler perspectives um, and this is it's like a really kind of key message that runs through their um, their article is that decolonization isn't a synonym for diversification or for inclusion um, or for kind of the many like really like really important kind of um, like social justice oriented uh, anti-racist um, kind of work and critical methods um, and pedagogies that happen in university spaces. Um, and so they kind of, are, yeah, they just are, they push on this, this term decolonial and decolonizing and the ways that it's been adopted into the university and it's is used in university spaces um, in kind of really interesting ways that, yeah, kind of unsettle um, some of the ways that kind of we're trained to think about what, decoloni what decolonization is and means. Yeah, and then this final um, quote that we've picked out kind of alludes to what Debs was just talking about in terms of even if um, the work that you're doing is 
out, you know, outrightly clearly anti-racist, even if it's um, for social justice or critical of what's gone before. Um, this harm that the term can do in terms of, you know, killing the possibility of decolonization, recentering whiteness, thinking about that sort of white guilt and um, that sort of idea of of the saviour as well. I think that that adoption of the term decolonization plays into all of those things and can be quite problematic. So we just really wanted to start with that, as I say, to kind of outline why we'll be talking in terms of anti-colonial. Um, you know, it's not without its own critiques, which I think Deborah's going to go on to talk about, but just really outlining that difference um, and, and why we're making it. Um, so yeah, I'm going to hand over to Deborah now to talk about extraction and extractivism. Um, hi, yeah. So um, I just kind of as a I'm kind of as a little bit of preamble, pre blurb. I work um kind of between contemporary poetry studies, uh, soundscape studies, critical technology studies, bioacoustics, kind of broadly under the environmental humanities umbrella. Um, and I, um, but today I'm going to be talking mainly about reading um, and reading methods more generally, um, and the place of practicing refusal and retooling in relation to extractive research logics and extractive reading practices. Um, I, yeah, I work on poetry mainly, so reading and close reading in particular is fairly central in terms of methods that I use. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about in the next kind of 15 minutes or so, it's kind of an experimental live bibliography, a sort of process of walking back through and with some of the texts, thinkers, tools, complications, intentions that are continually structuring and dissolving the structure of my practice. Um, yeah, so I, I work on extractivism. And particularly in my research, I think a lot about the ways in which looking out for and paying attention to the tendencies towards extractivism and extractive logics in research methods and practices can give us information about where the worn habits of colonialism, conquest, etc. Um, reside and take root in our disciplinary and interdisciplinary methods and practices. Um, so what do we mean when we talk about extractivism in these terms? Is it different from extraction? How does it manifest in the modern university, in teaching, in research? What does it mean to be anti-extractive and how does all of this relate to colonialism, colonialisms and the practice of carrying out anti-colonial research or using anti-colonial methodologies? Um, Amy, can you go to the next slide, please? Thank you. Um, so let's begin with some definitions. Um, Etymologically, the verb to extract comes from the Latin extrahere, to draw out. Um, the term moved into popular circulation in the late 16th, early 17th centuries um, and kind of quickly came to signify the often violent process of getting out the contents of anything by force, taking out anything embedded or firmly fixed. Um, also refers to the process of taking from something of which the thing taken was a part. Um, in early usage and still now, it, revert, it referred to various processes of um, kind of obtaining constituent elements, juices, etc., from a thing or substance by suction, pressure, distillation, or any chemical or mechanical operation, both of personal and material agents. So the employment of these various um, forms of force as a means for um, 
assuming access to so-called resources is an ongoing act enactment of colonial and capitalist logics that rely upon self-maximization and profit um, as justification for harm. However, I argue in my work alongside many others um, that the problem of extraction and extractivism doesn't necessarily begin and end with whether or not harm and damage are immediately visible um, or perceptible as a result of the process of extraction. My project begins from the position that an ethic of obligation and reciprocity must replace an extractive model, an extractive knowledge economy uh, in order for in order to produce knowledge in ways that stand up outside the logics that govern the colonial uh, academic industrial complex. Um, so I'm, I'm entangled with, obviously we all are, um, and working within the par parameters of this well-established dominant Western neo-colonial system of knowledge production. And it's therefore inevitable in my project that I'm uh, inadvertently reproducing some of the assumptions and violences that it's also that I'm also hoping to kind of diagnose and interrupt um, and in um, a third university as possible which is an amazing uh, text by the way thoroughly recommend it um, Le Papasin puts this split obligation really well in his discussions of the ways in which the first second and third universities of which the dynamic between the three he explains really well and I recommend going and reading it um yeah he he explains this split obligation between the three universities which are all coexisting um in a kind of constantly malfunctioning machine or assemblage of knowledges and practices so he says regardless of its colonial structure because school or the university is an assemblage of machines and not a monolithic institution its machinery is always being subverted towards decolonizing purposes. Um, the bits of machinery that make up the decolonizing university are driven by decolonial desires with the decolonizing dreamers who are subversively part of the machinery and part machine themselves. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the split obligations. Um, these subversive beings wreck, scavenge, retool and reassemble the colonizing university into decolonizing contraptions. They're cyborgs with a decolonizing desire. You might choose to be one of them. Um, in the third university, which is also inside of the first and second universities, um, the tools and methods owned by the first university are susceptible to being co-opted to anti-colonial, abolitionist, post-disciplinary, creative and liberatory ends. Um, due to my uh, project's focus on taking up and interrogating the extractive and colonial origins, uses and entanglements of various tools and methods between the sciences and the humanities, I work kind of in soundscape studies, so I think a lot about um, hydrophones, underwater microphones, um, in relation to kind of close reading methods in the humanities. Um, Le Papasin's text here provides powerfully grounding ways in which to envisage how this kind of co-option of tools um, might be enacted as participation in an ongoing collaborative interdisciplinary transnational and transhistorical practice of refusing the extractive logics of the first and second universities. Often though these logics of extractivism um, and automatic access might not be immediately or obviously identifiable as such, um, often they're veiled by suggestions of environmental goods, 
benevolence, um, innocence, care. Um, but care in itself can be violent. Care can be a violation. Um, our work, as uh, Catherine McKittrick puts it so brilliantly, can you go to the next slide, Amy? Thank you. Um, our work, as Catherine McKittrick, McKittrick puts it so brilliantly in Dear Science and Other Stories, which is another key kind of methodological text for my project, is to notice this logic, the recursive logic that depicts our presently ecocidal and genocidal world as normal and unalterable and breach it. Dislodging our, bio, our biocentric system of knowledge and showing that the natural sciences, the humanities and the social sciences are, when thought together, generative sites of inquiry. One way in which McKittrick suggests doing this noticing, this breaching of, of colonial logics um, is through att attention to the politics of citation. Are our bibliographies extractive? Do they reproduce the same colonial logics that structure so much of our learning and teaching in the modern Western university? Um, McKittrick calls out how sometimes citation practices do not take the time to feel and recognize liberation, um, sometimes referencing signals, illusion rather than study. Um, this image of a work cited page containing references to books, chapters, articles that have been skim read um, for neat confirming quotations um, at best was kind of all too familiar when I first came across it. Reading McKittrick, I was reminded of and convicted by the ways in which the academy continues to teach and reward deeply colonial acts of extractivism in reading and the ways in which these practices of extractive reading have real material effects. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to admit someone from the waiting room and I've accidentally clicked. I don't know okay. Just go back to the one before. Um, okay. Yeah, perfect. So um, McKittrick offers an alternative. Um, no, no, sorry, the next one. Yeah, sorry. Thanks. <laughs> um, McKittrick offers an alternative. She says, what if the practice of referencing, sourcing and crediting is always bursting with intellectual life and takes us outside ourselves? What if we read outside ourselves, not for ourselves, but to actively unknow ourselves, to unhinge and thus to come to know each other intellectually? inside and outside the academy as collaborators of generous and of collective and generous and capacious stories. So I hope that by refusing the logics of unidirectionality in reading, um, automatic access, consumption, possession, and self-maximization that characterize these colonial macho modes of knowledge production that we're all so well acquainted with, um, we remain accountable to and engage in other kinds of readerly possibilities and intertextual relationships. Um, these relationships will, I hope, uh, and already do extend beyond the confines of extractive, so-called objective academic reading and research economies and towards practices of accountability, specificity, reciprocity, caution and exchange. These former logics um, of extractivism and objectivity are characteristic of what uh, Max Liberon in their book, Pollution is Colonialism, another text which has been foundational to establishing my methodological and theoretical frameworks, as well as my citational politics, has called resource relations. 
we can move on to the next one if that's okay thank you um part of how liberon theorizes resource relations doesn't necessarily travel well from the island of newfoundland on the ancestral traditional um homelands uh of the Beotuk, um unceded ancestral traditional lands of the Beotuk in so-called canada um to the uk where i am liberon explains uh resource relations as referring to the morality of maximum use of resources dispossession and property as a way to control both time and space to secure settler and colonial futures um, because the province of newfoundland and labrador exists in the broader context of a settler state in canada its relationship to colonialism is different to here in the uk at the former heart of empire though the two places are closely entangled with each other um, the ways in which colonialism functions and persists in these spaces is different and bears different consequences. However, the concept of resource relations itself is still extremely useful and instructive here, um, and particularly for talking about how to read in a different kind of relation that isn't consumptive, violent or extractive. This is especially important when engaging with the work of those whose ideas and knowledge have historically been othered, left out, co-opted, stolen, or overwritten in term in favor of maintaining the colonial, imperial, gendered, and racialized status quo in the academy. Um, elsewhere, Libron uh, discusses uh, continues discussions of resource relations and extractive knowledge economies in specific terms relating to reading practices in academic work and writing. The social uh, inter and intellectual stakes surrounding these kinds of obligations they explain are high. They particularly talk about, um, let me go to the next slide, thank you. Um, they particularly talk about the ways in which the norms of value and valuation that underlie how we are taught to read and write are also the ones that force us out of academic pipeline pipelines and into trauma. In addition to these social stakes, there are intellectual stakes the problem with one-way extractive transmissions of knowledge is that the way knowledge is transmitted acutely affects the type of knowledge transmitted. Extractive reading can only result in one kind of knowledge transmission acquisition. Working simultaneously inside of and, and against a system that profits from extractive reading and citational economies, the academy, um, an alternative reading and citation practice that notices um, and offers clues um, on potential methods for working towards an economy of reciprocity is vital. Um, these practices include proper relational, gen generous um, citation, annotation, deep engagement, time spent and more. Um, working within this concept of reading within an ethic of reciprocity rather than in an economy of extractivism. Um, the reader is required to acknowledge their being in relation with and to a text and its authors, crucially outside of kind of one's own head. Um, these pr practices of embracing the, uh, the refusal of extractive research methods and specifically extractive reading relations have slowed me down um, considerably um, in the best ways and forced me to reckon with the usual pushes towards long, tight, comprehensive bibliographies, um, illuminating the colonial capitalist and self-maximizing performativity built into these urges when these 
bibliographies are constructed on the basis of um, kind of skim reading and extractive reading. Um, embracing this refusal has caused me to pause and refrain when the instinct cuts in to add a reference for a text that I'm not yet well enough acquainted with. This is a practice of refusal in progress, in process and constantly under review. Thanks. Is it me? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so kind of going on um, from Deborah, my work, as I said at the beginning, might seem quite different, but hopefully um, as we go through, it'll become clear why we've linked them. Um, so what happens when we do refuse extraction led me to thinking about what happens when we can't preserve everything. In museums, the tendency is, you know, extract, collect, preserve. Um, and even today with kind of contemporary collecting that museums are pushed to do, that is what they will do. You know, for example, when the Black Lives Matters protests happened, they went out, they took the placards, put them in their collection. What is the next move? So we might not be able to extract because we're using anti-colonial methodologies or for sustainability reasons or accepting that consent has not been given or maybe taken away. And this is kind of where our research starts to overlap. So I look at the anti-colonial spaces left by the return of cultural items from UK museums to indigenous communities. A couple of decades ago, and even up until relatively recently, one of the repeated arguments against repatriation was that it might lead, it would lead to a so-called slippery slope and UK museums would empty. Now that might tell you how much is in UK museums that shouldn't be, um, but it's also plainly not true, both because not everything in museums is stolen and because communities often don't want or can't accommodate having everything back that has been stolen. Um, and I'm still grappling with the word loss as it has such negative connotations. In most instances, museum teams today are pleased when a repatriation occurs, meaning that an item can be back with its rightful community. But I'm finding that there's still this element of saying goodbye, of curators letting go of something that they believe it's their duty to care for, of a loss. And so I'm looking at different ways museums prepare for this loss and how some choose to embrace it. So I'm focusing on these spaces, both metaphorical and physical, that would be left by items that had been returned and what the potential for those spaces are. Some curators are keen on ethically purchasing contemporary art from the community that they have returned items to. However, you can then end up with more extraction or with contemporary pieces from communities still being poorly interpreted, or like the vast majority of items being hidden inside storage facilities in perpetuity. And museums have continually collected objects to tell more stories about people and events and can now be described as agencies for managing profusion. However, there are often gaps in collections that mean museums supposedly do not have the objects to tell the stories that they want to, or that they can avoid telling truthful stories of colonialism. And this can mean that themes or issues are missed out of exhibitions. So essentially by putting artifacts at the center of exhibitions, it limits the issues available for discussion. Equally, objects that the museums know little about tend to remain neglected. 
and many museums try to rearrange objects around absence or collect or create new objects to fill gaps. So De Silvi talks about how there is this persistent museological assumption that the meaning and significance of an artifact can best be sustained by securing its physical permanence. And this idea of conservation and securing permanence, as I've said, is an extraction in and of itself. It's a colonial idea that harks back to the formation of many museums in the Victorian era, the false idea and justification that indigenous people were dying out and therefore their items needed to be preserved for future generations. Coupled with this, continuing to collect feels a fundamental problem with museum practice and conservation, which is the fact that museums have become completely unsustainable due to their storage facilities bursting full of collections that never see the light of day. But as De Silvi writes, on the flip side of this, museums often feel that loss equals erasure. De Silvi concludes that the act of saving something means we become implicated in its biography. Once you have this intrinsic link, to lose that item would be to lose our identities too. So I believe that the fear around repatriation is the idea of losing our colonial identities, losing that imperial nostalgia, and there's an anxiety associated with that surrender. Many museums like universities are seeking to decolonize, but as Deborah has just talked about, what about when this permanence comes at a cost of extraction, when this item was never meant to be permanent, never meant to be preserved, or when our preservation of something suffocates or kills a living being, what does this mean for anti-colonial practice? And Harrison, someone's drilling, um, Harrison wrote that there is an acceptance that new ways of caring, collecting, curating, and communicating the values of heritage must be conceived to accept the inevitability of change, that everything cannot be extracted, saved and preserved and to move away from traditional conservation. I'm just gonna close my window to see if that helps. <laughs> so I'm really interested in this provocation made last month at a brilliant event, which I believe was recorded and is or will be available online. This was from Su Ming Ku who asked, what is the non-colonial word for conservation? And I've changed this to what is the anti-colonial word for conservation? Su Ming was talking about scientific and ecological conservation being a means to continue imperial resource extraction. But I think that you can make an argument that heritage conservation and indeed resource, re, sorry, and indeed research is also a means to continue imperial resource extraction. And this idea of ethically conducting contemporary art to fill the space of repatriated items feeds into that. So rather than look at ways to fill these spaces with more items, I follow the absence. I look at the spaces left by or awaiting the return of cultural items. And I argue that within this absence, anti-colonial practice can be found. The problematic nature of the display of objects is becoming clearer as museums seek to decolonize, but absence has usually been viewed as negative in museum spaces. The idea that, and rightly so, if, an if a community were absent from an archive, they weren't represented. For instance, Tally talks about the act of absencing, where museums choose not to display or not to accession objects into their collection. 
showing how the museum, instead of documenting heritage, actually produces its own heritage. And this is linked to the idea of imperial nostalgia, where museums are places where colonialism is historicized and glorified. On top of this, you often find that in the interpretation of indigenous items, still today, those communities are talked about in the past tense. So where there is a presence of objects, there is still an absencing of the communities, an absence that historicizes them and makes them seem like they did die out. De Silvi, however, argues that absence can facilitate the persistence of memory and significance. Spaces created by communities getting their items back can provide such an absence. And I argue that museums should embrace these new absences created by repatriation so that anti-colonial stories can be told without the need to retain or display cultural items that perpetuate colonial violence and are often poorly interpreted. So this quote from Neil Curtis is about a temporary exhibition he curated in 2003 called Going Home, Museums and Repatriation. And this was off the back of the Marischal Museum where he was the curator, returning a sacred headdress to the Horn Society of the Gainai Nation. The exhibition featured various sections that showed the story of the headdress handover ceremony, repatriation debates elsewhere in the UK, and a discussion board that invited visitors to have their say. And Curtis reflected how comments by visitors were almost entirely favorable, such as all of humanity is connected to each other and so glad to see this as a discussion, I knew very little about procedures and cases of repatriation. A more recent example of exhibiting absence is at the Pitt Rivers Museum. They decided to move, remove all human remains from display, including the Sansa from South America, which the museum was famous for. Now, as you can see in this image, they have purposefully kept the case empty, which stands out amongst the profusion of material in the museum, and have used the space to add the word racism into their interpretation, talk about how the previous curation was problematic, the decision to remove human remains from view, and the repatriation processes that will now take place. So these examples indicate the anti-colonial power of absence. And further evidence of this potential can be seen in a slightly different way in the aftermath of the removal of colonial statues throughout the UK and the US in 2020 and 2021, following the Black Lives Matter protests. These removals, whilst different to repatriation and led by the public, have already shown how the removal of objects that perpetuate trauma and violence create opportunities for more powerful messaging. For example, this image shows a group of artists who have created the People's Platform, which uses augmented reality to show alternative suggestions created by the public for what could take the place of Colston statue in Bristol. They've also generated a lot of public attention and debate on the difficult subjects that their removal highlighted. This shows what opportunity for growth, change and something new, the return of cultural items might have and what the future of museums could look like. So embracing loss and exhibiting absence could dismantle and transform museum practice. Decentering the object would enable a move beyond the colonial gaze and center the anti-racist, anti-colonial stance in the post-museum. These spaces may be filled by interpretation written by the indigenous community themselves, becoming a space for truth telling and healing. These spaces would be people centered rather than object centered. 
And this embracing of loss would enable museums to start to move away from their colonial roots and disrupt imperial nostalgia. So although I've been talking about museums and repatriation, I think that the theories and ideas behind my work are applicable to research in general, particularly within settings such as UK universities. If we cannot gain consent to extract, then we cannot analyse, interpret or preserve this knowledge. And perhaps that is one of the most anti-colonial approaches we can take as researchers. Where we cannot extract and we embrace loss, that's where really exciting new work can happen. Innovation, should we create something new? Should we try to describe loss? Should we change topic or approach? And how can communities themselves utilise and tell their own truths in these spaces? And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.